Welcome to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy. The Mental Cast is a podcast focused on the topics and people helping drive us forward in leadership, learning, and our personal journeys. Just a reminder, you can send in your questions using the hashtag AskDanMickle, A-S-K-D-A-N-M-I-C-K-L-E, or sending an email to info at danmickle.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mental Cast. Welcome to the Mental Cast Season 3. I'm your host, Dan Mickle, and today we have Colin Thompson with us. And Colin, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, because you can by far do it better than me just reading off some uh, key points. So why don't you introduce everyone uh, yourself to everyone? Yeah, thank you, Dan. Good evening to you. Uh, it's my morning over here in Shanghai. I think we're about 13, about 13 hours difference. As you mentioned, Colin Thompson, very happy to be here on your podcast, because I think we're going to be talking about a lot of good topics um, one topic we're going to talk about, which is near and dear to my heart, is how athletes deal with getting older. And, you know, a lot of athletes go through the pain twice if they play collegiate sports or professional sports. Once they stop doing that, um, and they're pretty, still pretty young. And then, let's say <laughs> 10, 20 years later, when the body says, hey, we got to slow down. So it's like a double whammy. Uh, I, I am a Canadian born Jamaican. I moved from Canada. Well, my parents immigrated from Jamaica to Canada. And then we are immigrated from Canada to Louisville, Kentucky, back in 1980. Grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, where we played a lot, I got to say, a lot of sports. That was back in the day when your parents said, go outside and don't come back till the sun goes down. And we played sports and sports and sports and sports. And sports helped me get into college. Uh, I wasn't a stupid kid, but I was a lazy kid. Sports did allow me to uh, get accepted into college from a sports scholarship to Howard University, which is the HBCU historically black and college university in Washington, DC. And again, I gotta, I gotta thank my, my wrestling coach because I got a wrestling scholarship to Howard. And then I, uh, you know, worked for, spent 16 years in Washington, DC, worked for a number of years, enjoying life. And in 2008, I had the opportunity of a lifetime to come here to China for a work opportunity. And I've been here ever since 2008. So it's literally 12 years and five days since I've been here. Wow. How, how often do you make it back to, to North America at all? Well, it's a, that's funny. We got to talk about pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, <laughs> I was going back once a year. I'm a Canadian citizen, fellow Canadian citizen, who is also a U.S. green card holder. Legally, I must go back to the U.S. once a year to maintain my residence there. However, since um, not been back, so the last time I stepped ground in North America was August, excuse me, September of 2019. So it's been a long time. And my wife and I had a baby in August of 2019. I have not been able to take my, my, my son to meet my family. It's a little pain, little pain there, but we're hopeful to get back in 20, me, we're hoping to get back in 2021. And we hope my Chinese wife and, you know, Canadian Chinese baby have no problems getting through immigration. <laughs> right, right. Well, ho- hopefully that'll all be sorted out by then. Yeah. Um, so let's let's kick this off and talk about that topic a little bit. Um, you know, I, I'm 46 and I played, you know, high level volleyball and beach volleyball for a long time. And I kind of went through that process that you're talking about where 
um, my body was just shutting down and mentally I was still ready to go, but my body was like, nah, it's not happening. Right. Um, and, and it was tough. I ended up um, really like spiting the sport almost like just the thought of being around it hurt because it was such a part of my life. Um, for me, it was finding another discipline. I started playing sitting volleyball and working with some para athletes that kind of rejuvenated me. But so what do you think is the best process or, or what do you see when you're working with those athletes and, and how do you talk them through what's going on? Yeah, let me first say thank you for calling them athletes and not ex-athletes. I don't understand the term ex-athlete because being an athlete is also a mentality. And that mentality doesn't leave no matter how old you are. So what I've found to be helpful and not just um, on my, my transitioning from being an active athlete or a fast athlete or a strong athlete to just a regular, <laughs> regular kind of athlete and with my clients is really coming to terms with this is natural. A lot of times when we go through this, we feel like our body is shutting down on us. Our body is letting us down. We're getting lazy. We're getting, we're not doing what we, we're not doing enough. And we put the blame on ourselves. We don't look at science. It comes back down to science. Your body goes through changes from your teenage years to your 20s to 30s to your 40s to your 50s and 60s and on and on and on. So one of the things we have to, we have to come to terms with is it's not ourselves. As you, as you mentioned, you want to spike volleyball. I'm sure a lot of that spite was, was doing to you think something about you, not the game itself. So I think one, one thing we work on is saying, you know what, everybody goes through this. How can we accept that? And then as you did, find something to rejuvenate you or keep you active. Do you think sports where the older age athlete can continue to play have it right in the sense of like golf where you can go through the PGA and then you go through the seniors tour. So it's obviously not the same competitive level, but it's still competitive. And I know like one of the big things being talked about now is a legends league or whatever you want to call it for MMA and, and combat right, sports. Right. I just don't know. Like I want to see old guys beating up old guys. You know what I mean? Like it, it do we need those competitive leagues at all sports at that age or should we really start to shut it down? Is, is our body really telling us we shouldn't be doing that? Like, what's that balance? So this is it's interesting because I asked myself, I played football and wrestling. Do I want to wrestle? I'm 47. Do I want to get back on the mat and wrestle? And I know that people watching us wrestle would say, we don't want to watch this. As you mentioned, we don't want to see two old guys going at it. But freak that. Those two old guys are having fun. Those two old guys are getting at it. So I say it's less about what spectators want to, to see and how they how comfortable they are seeing it. It's more about the two people who are competing, right? The men in the arena. So I think that whatever, whatever activity a person wants to do, as long as the body can handle it, they should go after it. You, you mentioned golf, and I'm not talking down to, to golfers. I think you have a distinct difference between the professional golf players and the weekend golf players. A lot of people play golf, um, you know, all their life and they, their, their bodies are able to keep up. But if you played, let's say softball, baseball, basketball, all throughout your life, you do notice you still, you still love playing when you're in your thirties and forties and fifties, but you're not playing as fast. So it's a little different. I think a lot of golfers are able to keep it up until they're into the 40s and they see the game come down a little bit, but physically they're still able to do it. But I think most of the other sports are it's a, little, it's a little more difficult on a physical level. That's why you have to, I say you have to play the game with people your age. Right. Do you think um, 
it's harder for the athlete to physically go out there or harder for them to mentally go out there. Like in, for, for example, um, and, and I'll use golf again, you, you know, the, the tee boxes are shorter now on the seniors. Right. Do you think like mentally knowing that you're playing at that level is tougher than what you're physically going through? Like, okay, I'm at that point where I can no longer compete at this level. Do you think that's actually worse than the body saying, no, it's time to shut it down? Um, well, I, I don't know because the, the T, the, the golf example, three saying with the seniors, the T is shorter, correct? Yeah, I, I believe it's a shorter distance. So they, they modify the rules. Oh, 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 you mean, okay, you mean, yeah, for, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm talking about the actual T. No, okay, no, no I'm sorry, actual... I, I meant the distance. Yeah, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're changing the rules a little bit to make it easier for the seniors. And I, I don't know, there's like that mental switch, like, okay, once I do this, there's no turning back. My, my, my high performance days are done and now I'm moving into the senior area. And I often wonder if, if that's more of the holdup for people, um, you know, maybe a lot more people would stay competitive longer if they could just come to the terms with, okay, I got to change things a little bit to continue. Well, I think a great, you know, example or great match example is when people can play full court basketball and then realize they can't play full court basketball anymore. Now they have to play half court because they can't get up and down the court. Again, I think that also with golf, if the rules mandate that, then Hey, it's not you not being able to do it. It's you just being in that category. There are several ways of, of looking at that. And I'll, I'll admit, in the first few months, few years, maybe people do feel negative about that. But at some point, they just, I'd say, they get into their lane and they understand that, hey, again, it's not, it's not me as a person. It may not even be me physically. It's just the nature of the game. That's why they have these rules for for different cases. I think with the seniors, it's not about the, the the ability to hit the ball far. It's more about the ability to 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 go travel from hole to hole at a fast pace. What um so it's easy for us to talk about like aging and getting to that point because you see it coming. You know, you know when you start to hit a certain age, you got you're gonna have to do something drastic, like the Tom Brady's and the pro football players that play for a really long time, like sleeping in the air chambers and the oxygen. For the average person, we just start to see things start to go downhill a little bit. We notice the scores are changed stuff. But what what do we do about like the athletes where it happens in a blink of an eye? You know, they get injured on the field or a car accident or something. How do we help them transition to that? Like, hey, there's more than life. And you learned a lot from playing sports. Now let's transfer that into something else. How, how do we get to that point? Yeah, well, Dan, let me first say that. You mentioned that when, when the um, athletes realize that their skill set is going down a drain, so to speak. Don't say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's performing at a different level. Okay. okay. Performing right, right. at a different see, level. See, we all learned something new. I'm, I'm, I'm literally writing that down. <laughs> and so, so you mentioned, you know, the instances or situations where athletes get injured or the sport is taken away from them in an instant. I want to go back to when a lot of athletes first experienced that and not even from injury. A lot of athletes experience that once their collegiate or professional sports days are over. You, you know, it's a small number of athletes that actually go into the pro level. So I'm not gonna talk about the, the pro athletes, but there are a lot of collegiate athletes who the, the very moment they graduate, the sport is gone. Or through scholarship issues, the sport's gone while they're in college. And a lot of times it's very hard for these athletes to transition to being a regular person. 
they're still athletes, but they're not being athletic. And that's difficult because if we think about those individuals who play sports at a collegiate level, they typically have a very high skill set, which means that they've been playing sports probably from elementary school through middle school through high school. They're probably one of the best people on the high best players on the high school teams. So they have years and years and years of not just being a good athlete, but being known as the athlete. So you're Dan the athlete, Dan the volleyball player, not just Dan. So once volleyball or a sport is taken away, that's when a lot of younger athletes have trouble transitioning because their whole life, that is what they were known for. And if you have an injury, I've had teammates who've been injured and their career is kaput. And it's okay, you know what? It's kaput, let me pivot. Because they were forced to pivot. When your collegiate career is over, you're like, okay, what do I do now? I'm still healthy. I can still do these things. I don't have an, I don't have an environment to do them. And that's where the pain is. If you think about playing collegiate uh, 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 football or even bas basketball, once your season's over, your senior year, you can go play. Um, you, can, you can play full contact flag football. You can play pickup or rec league basketball, but it's really not the same. It's really not the same. So a lot of times people, the, the first, I would say crisis, so to speak, is when they're not able to, not, not able to continue the, the, collegiate, the collegiate sports. Now on the topic of being injured, a lot of times that's a difficult uh, transition to make, but, the, the, but if you've had cast off injury, that means you can no longer play sports. The first focus is being able to maintain a regular lifestyle, meaning being able to walk correctly, being able to, if you have a back injury. So a lot, a lot of times it's not instantly the sports are going away. It's how can I heal up? Because quite frankly, your doctor will tell you, you know what, your knees busted up, you're done playing sports. Well, F you doctor, I'm going to show you. So they will focus more on healing and then they have to deal with no longer being able to do sports. Do you think it's a failure of the coaching world? that doesn't prepare these athletes for the time that sports done? Like, is that something that the coach role needs to be bigger in is breaking that identity between Dan, the volleyball player and Dan, the person, because we're so focused on making them the best athletes because as coaches, you know, we need to win or we want them to win. And, and we're always turning players over, you know, for me as a college coach, I see players for four years and then a new group comes in. I just keep cycling them over. Um, now I like to think that I keep a good relationship with them, but you know, do you think that's something that the coaching world needs to take a bigger look at is, is how we're tying and in, in the identity of sports to these players? I think in high school, I think high school coaches have responsibility because you have less after they're going to go to under college. And I think high school, my, my, my dream job if I, if I was rich would be to be a high school wrestling coach because the kids there are still impressionable um, and, and they're still struck, not still, they're still learning and growing. So I think as a co high school coach, it's your responsibility to prepare them for the next level. That's college, usually academically. In, in, in college, I would say absolutely not the responsibility of the coach to do that. The coach is there to prepare their, their team to compete. Now, my coach, he always said he, he was very big on academics. My, my, I went to academic school, not a, not, not a big pro, big sports school. But he always said, get your grades, get your grades, get your grades, graduate, graduate, graduate. He always said that, you know, little father figure. But it was not his responsibility. I think if a coach has that attitude, it's even better. But I would say it's the coach's responsibility to make sure that the athlete 
is, is, is meeting the guidelines of being like, eligible, making sure that there ha- he, he's, he's not missing classes, make sure he's following those rules. But I think it's the coach's responsibility, responsibility to prepare that person to go out and compete and be healthy. So what is your approach then to help these athletes make that transition? Like wh- what's it look like? What's the process look like for you to get them out of that? Okay, it's time to start thinking post athletics and, and, and how I'm going to carry that on into the rest of my life. Yeah. So luckily the athletes I deal with are more than ones hitting their thirties and forties who have, who are now more dealing with the issue from a physical standpoint. And, and Dan, I got to tell you, it's interesting because I remember, and I'm sure you experienced this going from say 28 to about 32 and he felt a difference in your ability to compete. I'm 47. I wish I was at that 32 level right now, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's really all relative, but, but when you're going through it for the first time, because for a lot of people, the first time you get an injury and it takes you longer to heal is the early 30s. The first time you find that there are people who are a few years younger than you passing you up with less effort. That's when you hit your early 30s. So luckily, at that point, again, we're dealing with science. I always say we're dealing with science. We're not dealing with you as a person. Um, that, that's hard for people to take initially, but I think luckily because I'm not dealing with the, I would say the 23 year olds who are having to sort of say, okay, my collegiate experience is over either due to graduation or injury. What do I do now? I think that's where they lean on their parents. That's where the parents get back involved. And family is so important with that. And hopefully the parents, they had a good example growing up where they know that, hey, I'm fortunate enough to be able to play sports at, at, at this high level for a number of years, but I'm going to go be an engineer. I'm going to go be a, 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 a journalist. I'm going, to, I'm going to go be a teacher. So is, is that the key then is making sure that there's that next step? And, and I think the reason I ask that is when we see this situation, and, and I hate to say it in movies, um, you know, where the college athlete gets hurt and he realizes his career is over, it's like the end of the world for him. And I don't think that's realistic because I think, most of us in the college world prepare people for that moment. Like we're pushing for them to get that degree and, and, and get in that field. But, but is that really the key is making sure that they have the multiple focuses and, and, and how to relate it. I mean, is that where we come in, in the, in the training world that we try to bridge that gap of, Hey, this was your athletic training, but this is how you can do it in the corporate world. And, th- and this is how you can succeed in the corporate world. Or is it more of just, bringing the best out of that person and hoping they make that bridge? Well, I definitely don't want to leave it up to that person because that, that age is still relatively young and inexperienced. I think in a perfect world, we'd be able to have access to those students. Again, I don't think it's the coach's responsibility to do that. Perhaps within the athletic department, they have advisors or, or whatnot who will help the students to make the transition. But I want to go back to something you said, which, which I want to challenge. I do think that in a lot of situations, when athletes get injured, especially their freshman, sophomore, junior, junior year, and they have no backup plan, that does derail, derail their career. Because typically, if you get injured in your first few years, your scholarship is gone. It doesn't matter if they promised you four years. And for some people, the only thing that got you into that school is that scholarship. So they'll say, hey, you can stay here if you can afford to pay the tuition. In a lot of cases, they can't afford to pay tuition. So I've seen a lot of people who got injured, you know, the freshman year, sophomore, junior year, 
and it totally derailed their, their not just their athletic career, but their collegiate career as well, as far as being a student. So I think one of the things is people understanding the situation. And I, I don't think it's a good situation a lot of athletes have in college. I was on scholarship and I tell you, it did not feel good. <laughs> you know, for, for most athletes, people don't know this, most athletes hate their sport by the time they graduate. Right, right, right. So because now you have to do it, not because you want to do it. So I think that I don't know how we'd be able to get access to the student athlete to help them prepare for what's coming next. I think each program should have something set up there to help the students. But quite frankly, the students aren't going to want to go because they're going to think they're 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 going to, they're going to think that no matter what, I'm going to be okay. So it's hard to really get them to to. It's like your dad giving you advice. You're like, whatever, dad, you know? <laughs> and with, and with, in two years, that's coming back to bite you in the butt and you wish you would have listened to dad a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Do you, okay, so that opens up an interesting thought. Do, do you think that that's a reform that should happen at the college level that if you're on scholarship and you get hurt, you don't lose your scholarship? And it, and it doesn't count towards the team. Like, I realize that that's the issue. You're hurt they lose your running back or your, your center, you know, in basketball, you have to replace him to be a successful team, which means you're eating up a scholarship. But don't you think the schools could figure out a way to, I would think that those cases are small enough to figure out that like, if this guy's hurt and can't compete, we owe it to him to let him finish out our school. I mean, it looks good for the school. The kid's getting an education. Like, I, I just feel like maybe the schools should have a little bit more responsibility in that sense. Yeah, and some schools do that. You know, it's not a, I've heard several cases also where a person got injured typically after the sophomore year and allowed to keep their scholarship. I think that, it's, as you mentioned, it's a tough one because it comes back down to dollars and cents, to budget. Um, I know that athletic departments are able to provide uh, insurance to athletes as far as, well, typically for the top rated athlete if they get injured the last year. I, I don't know what a school can do I see it from both sides. I think that, that, uh, yeah, that's a tough one, Dan, because injury should not prevent you from graduating university. I think that there could be other things done. Perhaps you help the students find on-campus jobs. Uh, perhaps there are things, you know, grants available. Um, um, but, you know, I think it coming down from the athletic department. First of all, I think it should come from, from the athletic department, but I think there should be a stipend or some sort, sort of fund there that will, that will take care of that. But a lot of programs, you know, are scared to do that because you may have athletes, and I hate to say this, who are who got tweaked and say, you know what, coach, I, I can't go, I'm, I'm out, you know, because they're tired of the sport. So, and I've seen that as well. Right, right, kind of gaming the system to get the free education, right. but not have to do the work. Right. Um, do you think it's harder to transition out of ath- athletics, the, the, the college player leaving and, you know, it's like wrestling, even volleyball. There's not a lot to do after you're done with college in these sport in, in most Olympic sports. Right. Do you think that's a harder transition or do you think the transition when the body's giving up and you're in your fifties, sixties is the harder transition? Oh my God. That's, that's an easy question. The second one, the second one, because when you transition from college, you have, hopefully, you have a major distraction coming, and that's your first real job. So hopefully, either you're going to go to grad school or you're going to, you're going to start working. And that takes up a lot of time. And, and typically, you're still young and energetic. So 
I think you're going to find activities to do. You're going to go find some 5Ks to run. You're going to go to the gym. You're still going to exercise. You're still going to work out. You, you still you still will be active. Hopefully, you'll still, still be active. And again, that transition is, I think, in my opinion, and I went through this, a lot easier to take. When I finished my career, I probably took six months, did nothing. Then I started running. Now I'm playing you know, full contact play football. Um, for years after that. So I was still very, very athletic. It wasn't until I noticed that if I went to the gym, I'm starting to get sore. And, and it was very strange. Not the next day, two days later, I got very, very sore. It's very strange. And I noticed that I wasn't as dominant playing football as I used to be. I noticed that I wasn't running as, as fast as I feel exhausted as I used to be. So for me, it was, wait a second, I've been unstructable or indestructible, excuse me, for 30 years. It's my downfall now. What the hell is going on? And that was much harder for me to take. Now, luckily, I went through that at 30. So when I hit 40, I was prepared for it because every 10 years, you go through another cycle of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, for, for us, the, the tell was, and, and luckily for me, you know, for the most part, I played with the same couple partners and we were all in the same age. So, so we all hit these milestones at the same time, but you know, we would go and play a full day on Saturday and win a tournament and then go play another one on Sunday and win that tournament back to back. And then you start creeping in your thirties and you play Saturday and you're like, you know what? I think I'm just going to pass on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and then the next thing you know, it's okay, well, I'm going to pass this whole week. (laughs) Um, and, And, you know, and it transitions to that. So, I think that's, and you're right about the every 10 years, the, the difference between 28 and, and into the thirties was big. And the, and, and the thirties into forties was really big. It, it makes me nervous about going into the fifties, but I, I think I at least mentally have this part figured out. I just got to make sure the body comes with me. Um, yeah. What, what's probably the biggest piece of advice that you would give a client or someone that comes to you with, you know, the, the aging process and, you know, Colin, what should I do? Or, you know, how, how can I keep on track? What do you think is probably the okay. biggest piece of advice? So I'm going to answer that. I want to jump back to something you said a moment ago. Also, one big thing I noticed as well is I can drink a six pack of beer on Friday night and get up and run. No problem. Saturday. <laughs> After a while, no, nah, could not, could not mix the two at all. My friend, my friend, Colin, how can you drink one, one day and get up at 6 a.m. to go run? No, not a problem. After a while, no, I couldn't do it. And that's another thing that let me know that my body is absolutely changing. So going back to your question to, to the piece of advice, I think that, and I'll do it differently. I'll do it from that 30, the 30 bracket to the 40 to the 50. I think when you hit your 30s, <laughs> to be honest with you, push harder because this may be the last time you're really able to really, really push. Yes, your body is changing and you can't compete at the same level. Um, you can't compete at the same level easily, but you're still able to, if you push harder, work harder, you can still compete at the same level. You may be a little bit more sore, you may be more tired, more exhausted, but you can still compete at that high level if you push harder. And your body will recover. It may just take a little time. And also, as I mentioned before, understand that what you're going through, everybody's going through this, not just athletes, people who are just walking to work, people, the, the, the body goes through this. As you hit your, I would say your low 30s, early 40s, now you have to start listening to your body. 
Because now if you try to push, 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 you're going to injure your body. And whereas it may have taken you in your 20s, you know, if you, if you twist your ankle really bad, it might take you a week and a half to recover, early 30s, maybe two weeks, man, 40, ankle injury, you're, you're done for three weeks. You're done. Yeah. You're done. You're done. You're done for three weeks. Okay. And so, and it feels you're dealing with getting older and now your ankle, you don't want that, you don't want that mental baggage. So once you're in your late 30s, I coach my clients into understanding that you must listen to your body and your doctor, right? This is the time to really listen to what your doctor says if you go to a sports doctor, but understand your body. And again, let yourself take that time to heal and find events, find events that are more, that are more, not easy for you to do, that are more comfortable for you to do where you still feel like you're accomplishing something, but you're not pushing yourself too far because you still have your 50s, your 60s, your 70s to go. Yeah. And, and for us in the volleyball world, especially like in the beach volleyball world, you know, we grow up, we have these divisions B and then you move up from B to double B, then a double A, then open. And you make it up to that top and you're like fighting it out. But then you're like, Oh, this week I'm going to go to double A. And then the week after you're going back down to A and it's like, and, and honestly, for, for me, the worst part is, you're sitting there and you're looking and the courts are right next to each other. So like I'm, I'm playing double B again, which I haven't played since like 92, 93, but I'm still right next to the open or the pro courts watching all right. that. And like, man, I miss that. But my body says I got to be down here. And, and, and that's, that's tough. But you know, that, that point you said about push harder really does make sense. If in my twenties, I was really successful because I, I studied the game. I was smart with the game. And I knew how to play the game, but I did not have the physical ethic, I guess, to, to get my body in shape, to be the best I could have been. And that's probably my biggest regret is that I didn't push myself hard enough. I was winning and doing well by my skill, not by my work ethic. And I wish that work ethic would have come with me. That's probably my biggest regret. Mm, mm. That's very interesting because I think about my work ethic was good and I had a skill. And from my, I was from 37 to about 44, my work ethic got very, 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 very low because, or much lower because I did not get the same feeling of accomplishment from doing things. And I think it's because, you know, you do your first marathon, oh my God, I never thought I could run 26 miles. But after your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and tenth, the fire isn't there as much. So my training very much changed. And, and I think that now as I'm, as I'm in, in a better mental place, as far as my physical, my mental, and my, my desires from a sports level, it's much easier for me now to get up and be disciplined and train. Now I'm not going as hard as I used to, but again, I don't need to. And Dan, I gotta say the biggest thing that people have to deal with, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, is that mental side of it. It's not the physical side. Understanding that, you know, regardless of whether, if you're an athlete, regardless of whether or not you're feeling sore, you're feeling older, you're not doing your main sport anymore, you're still gonna do something. Do something, get up and do something. If your thing is baseball and, and you can't play baseball anymore, Go out, go run around the track a few times, but find something to do and find people to do it with. I think that's one of the best things to do is find people to do these sports with because that makes an activity now, a group activity as just opposed to you. And when you join them, you're going to find that, hey, man, 
a lot of these folks go, we're going through the same thing I'm going through. We're getting all, let's all get older together. Let's all get slower together. I do a lot of races. And as you mentioned, there are some, you know, there are some cats who are in their 20s and 30s that are killing me. You know, they're just, just, just crushing me. And I had to deal with it. I remember the first time, this, this may sound bad, but I remember the first time that women my age started beating me. Well, a little younger me started beating me. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And now, look, let me tell you something. Grandma Rose can beat me. I don't care, right? Because when I do these things now, I'm competing against myself. So I think, you know, as you get older, hopefully your, your mindset changes and you start looking at not what am I doing compared to what I was doing five years ago because you were younger five years ago. What am I doing now to make me feel like I'm still active and accomplishing something? That brings up an interesting question. So as a person that's not a runner, and I don't know that I'll ever understand the running culture because that's a whole, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but runners are a different breed. Um, do you, what motivates you in the running? Is it trying to be the best in like your age group? Is it trying to beat your personal record? Or is it literally just the feeling of running and doing something that drives you to do marathons and stuff like that? Like when you sign up for your next marathon, are you going in with the expectation to win your age group or whatever? Or is it just, hey, I, I'm just out here to push myself at this point? I've never even placed in a running race. <laughs> I'm a Clydesdale, man, over 200 pounds. I'm a Clydesdale. I'm, I'm, I'm a big guy to run. Uh, now, now I do it because that's what I do. Now I do it because I have different, different goals. You could say, for example, in 2021, I want to do five marathons. And I want to do five marathons because in the next six years, I want to equal my age in the number of marathons. So I think by the time I turn 52, I'll be able to catch up. I'm at 27 now. So that's why um, I, I don't I don't do them because I want to place because I'm, I'm very far off that pace. I think now, again, I do it because that's just what I do. And a lot of athletes, we do things because that's just what we do. Now, years ago, when I first started running, I was running because you know, I, I was traveling for work a lot and I couldn't go find a, a, a flag football league to play in. I couldn't go find a gym all the time. So I just started running, 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 and running. And it took me a long time to, to really embrace running. I remember my first 5K, I almost died. <laughs> I was 24 years old, I almost died. But you mentioned that runners are crazy. I agree, some runners are crazy. But to me, triathletes are crazy. They're more sane crazy. Because they, they really, you know, most triathlons really cover a long time and a long distance. And the training is intense. And I think that triathletes, um, runners, anybody who really grinds and doing anything for over an hour or two, I think those are some really endurance and, and, and really dug in athletes. I, I, I watched and read some stuff by like these ultra marathoners and, and I just sit around, I, I just, I, I don't know what makes you wake up and say, Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run for the next six hours, you know, <laughs> but, but like at full speed, like, so it's interesting to hear from your perspective, someone that's not trying to beat, you know, the age record or whatever, like how you get into that mindset. And, and I like the idea of, well, I couldn't find a flag football, you know, I'm traveling. So I just ran and I ended up liking it. And I think that's kind of an interesting story. The fact that you, you've replaced what you had, the flag football and the other leagues with the running and you seem to probably have the same amount of joy. It's probably different. I mean, I don't know that you can ever get more joy than like cracking someone on a tackle or, you know, breaking a route, but, right. but, but it's, it's a different joy that, I mean, 
if you would have asked yourself in your twenties that this is where you would be and you get the joy out of running the marathon, what, what do you think your response to yourself would be? I think I would have been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I knew, I knew that, you know, I couldn't keep wrestling and I knew that I couldn't keep playing football. So I knew there had to be something else. I think I just be glad that I'm still being active. And then so let me share with you something um, because I do have this. So when I, when I went, when I was about 35, I was going through my, wow, I'm really not performing like I used to. And I'm getting older, my body's changing. What can I do to, 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 to continue to feel young or to let myself feel like I'm still in the game? So I said, I want to establish a yearly event. So when I was 35 or 36, I decided to have an annual event. My birthday is August 13th. So every August 13th, in 24 hours, I would run my Asian miles. And I've done that every year, except two, since, since 2000, 2000, 2010, maybe, maybe. And I didn't do it last, well, I did it last year, uh, 47 miles, but the previous two years, I was injured, so I couldn't do it. And I think that is something that I think just, just gives me such a strong mindset. As you know, a lot of athletes have a very powerful mindset because you must go from, as you said, you mentioned, you're in your tournaments. If you get jazz kicked now, you have to go out and forget about that perform. Or if somebody spikes on you, you have to go out and get up and perform. So a lot of athletes have a very, very strong mindset about how to overcome fear, how to overcome pain, how to push through. You perform injured. I'm sure you have. Uh, so you, you, you have to have that mindset. So I think me doing a birthday run every year, it, it's one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. But I know every year it's going to make me a little tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. And my mindset is, look, it gets tough every year, but only by a mile, right? So keep doing it <laughs> only by a mile. <laughs> and, and the fact that you're running, it still means you're on this side of the dirt. So you're doing pretty good, right? Yeah. Well, it's a lot of walking. A lot, it's a lot of walking. And I, I'll tell you, my, my, even, even in races, if you have to walk during a race, walk during a race. Now, in my 20s, 30s, early 40s, I would say never walk during a race. But again, my mindset is clear. My mindset is more on finishing, not just not. I'm not going to win. So if you have to walk, walk, man. Listen to your body. You know, we were talking. I think it was two years ago. Uh, my friend that runs marathons, uh, she was running the Boston Marathon, and I said, you know, I really would think about signing up for one of those big marathons, and just running as fast as I possibly can right out of the gate, because that's when the cameras are on. And then I'm just going to walk the rest of it, <laughs> but everyone's going to remember where's that crazy guy that ran full speed out of the gate. <laughs> you know? and, and um, so how do we transition that to, you know, the next part, which is, is we're done with sports or, or, or sports are no longer the main focus like they were in college and high school. And, and now it's the business world and, and you've transformed into that. Um, I've transformed into that. But, but how do we get the people to transform that into the business world? How do we take these lessons and say, okay, what you've learned on the mat or on the field is what you need to learn in the boardroom or on the sales floor. Um, are, are you seeing a lot of that translate from your athletic training to, you know, just regular life coaching and, and organizational coaching, or is it still like three concept, like three completely different processes for you? Well, I think it's about individuals. So I think individuals who who are active, 
in an in a athletic way, meaning they routinely get up early and go to the gym, meaning they're running at night, meaning that they're keeping the body in shape. I think those are the people, those are the individuals who tend to ask more questions, tend to have more energy, tend to be the ones who, who, who get those promotions, who get those better opportunities because they're being more active. I think that has more to do with, as opposed to somebody who was a collegiate athlete or not. I've seen it go both ways. I think that some collegiate athletes are very used to sort of being the center of attention and they may do things to keep that, they may do things to keep that attention there, which means participating in the work, work, uh, work, uh, work sports teams, um, letting people know who, what, what the background is, just trying to be that guy. And a lot of times being that guy means you're gonna to try to study more, you're gonna to try to work harder, you're gonna get there earlier. Uh, as athletes, we know how to get to practice early and stay late. So it could be a combination of those things, but I think that in the corporate world, it's more about coaching now, coaching, training, and not necessarily the same approach we take at athletic coaching, more, I don't say life, more life coaching, more hands-off coaching. Do you think, like, are, are you finding, um, how do I ask this? Do you think it's easier to bring someone from the sports world into the corporate world? Or do you think it's easier bringing the sports world to someone that's in the corporate world, in the training? Like, do, do you think it's easier, someone that hasn't been an athlete, but is, you know, in the corporate world, bringing the, the principles and philosophies that you've learned as an athlete to them? Do you find that harder than trying to teach an athlete the business side of life? Mm. <laughs> I don't want to, oh gosh, <laughs> I don't want to sound down on anybody, but I've been to the gym sometimes uh, this last week and I've seen some people in the gym, you can tell have never been in the gym before and they're just lost um, and they're working out and they're literally on the bench press and they're doing it and they're not tired yet but they don't have that thing that says, let me do a couple more reps. And I think it's harder to, it's harder to train somebody to, to do things while they're tired or uncomfortable or, or, or a little painful to go further. I think it's easier to have individuals who have a more athletic background transition to the work environment, whether that be business, blue collar. And I think it's because in most cases, they've had to work some part of their lives they have parents who've been working so they're more used to the work environment they, they they know it's coming so to speak they have experience whether or not you're 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 working you've done presentations at school you you've you're a student so you know how to be professional i think it's much tougher though to convince somebody um that doesn't want to run to go run a mile well i i think you hit on i'm so glad because my my theme for 2021 is uncomfortable and mm. i really think that that's kind of what we're lacking and when i start to think about the clients i work with that aren't or weren't real heavy athletes or into it um but are very successful in business but they don't have that edge i think it's because they've never been in a position where you get uncomfortable like you are in sports like there's a lot of times you're uncomfortable with the coach you're uncomfortable with your your teammates or you're uncomfortable with the situation or what's going on, but you kind of have to fight through it. Mm -hmm. And I loved your analogy about the bench press and, you know, you're getting tired, but they don't have that mechanism that says I can put a, a few more reps out. And I think in the corporate world, that's what I run into is we don't have, we don't have that mechanism where people are like, you know what, I'm going to make a few more calls to get this sale 
or I'm going to do a few more things to make sure this product goes out. They're just like, okay, it is what it is and we'll figure it out. There, there isn't like that next gear, that next level. And, and I think that's kind of what we're running into a little bit in the corporate world. Yeah. You know, if you think about, how do you feel a reward? As you mentioned, you work with individuals who are very successful at work, but want to um, aggressive in the gym. Now at work, they may say, you know what? Wait a second. It's time to go home, but let me make one, two more calls. They may have that there. They, 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 may, get, they may get a rush or they, they want to get those sales. For other people, it's, it's just a job. It's right. just a job. And I don't, you know, me making an extra sale versus me um, pushing up those, those reps, which one do you really, really want? Dan, if you told me you can give me a job making six figures or I could complete 10 full Ironmans, Hands down, it's 10 full Ironmans because my goal is to complete a full Ironman, which I've a lifetime goal, which I've yet to do yet. So that to me is much more important than anything I can get from a career. So I think a lot of times it's based on, you know, what is valued as that reward. So when it comes to training, um, you know, and, and looking at the business world, where do we make that balance of, you know, like what the employees must know versus what they should know? Like we, we don't know. Most employees don't really know what they're missing out on. Right. We, we don't know what we don't know. How do we convince them that, Hey, you might be doing this and you might be doing it well, but this is kind of what you need to add to it. How do we get them to that point to see the bigger picture, to help the whole company and the culture, as opposed to just getting better as the person? Right, right. I think that it starts from getting better as a person because the better a person feels, the more valuable the person is in the marketplace, the more likely they're going to add value to your company. And as a manager, it's your responsibility to really get the most out of your employees. Now, I want to say that I've seen over the past few years, more managers are learning how to be coaches and not not sports coaches, but coaches and understanding and help coaching their employees to be more valuable to themselves and in the marketplace. Because when we become more valuable in the marketplace, it means that you're increasing your ability and your skill set. And that means taking additional training. And one of the questions you asked me earlier offline was more about what an employee sh should know versus what they need to know. And a lot of times in the past, the training was more on tacit topics. How to use this tool to be more productive. How to use these tools to collaborate with your teammates more. It was more on going to training where the trainer says, here's how you do this, right? Here's how to use this tool. Here's how to use this, this, um, uh, this um, workflow process. Here's how to use, use this methodology. As opposed to what we're seeing more of now, which is more training on the soft skills. Here's how to have more grit. Here's how to have better problem solving skills. So I'm seeing more and more employees providing that sort of soft training to their employees. Now I'll tell you why, as you mentioned with COVID now, employees are at home more and organizations are finally rolling out more training. One of the best ways to amass training is to train on soft skills because everybody can use soft skills. If you have an accounting team, you're not gonna teach your accounting team how to use, um, how, to, how to design web pages. If you're a webpage team, you're not going to teach them how to use financial software. But you can teach both of them how to be better at problem solving, how to be better, how to be better, um, how to 
be better work, work how to create a better work environment. So I think more companies are now saying, let's just, you know, do one magic bullet and train up a whole lot of people. And the the ding 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 checkbox training right now is diversity and inclusion training. That is by far the biggest thing on the menu right now. It is it is just like and companies are doing it not not because they want their employees to be more aware, not because they understand the, the, the dollar benefits from it, because they want to check that box in case somebody's looking. It, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I just finished up my second master's degree and my thesis was on the lack of soft skill training in the youth sport population. And I surveyed over a thousand coaches ranging from five-year-old, you know, coaching five-year-old up to college. And it was less than 10% of all of them had any training in any soft skill. And, and most of that was a one day seminar on conflict resolution or communication mm. to deal with parents. Mm. Mm. But, but there was no training on inclusion, diversity, um, body language, communication, right. you know, burnout. Like we're burning coaches out, but no one's training on how to avoid the burnout, you know? Or how to deal um, with parents, how to deal with the parents, right? Yeah, like it's, it's, it, it's crazy how, um, how, how things have shifted, but I was surprised with the number, how low it was with the soft skills. Um, and, and, and I think you hit the, your ding, ding, ding moment is absolutely right because I, I offer a bunch of programs but only one of them, I really had a lot of diversity into it. And, and I happened to be working with a great friend who's getting her PhD. Um, and I forget what the actual PhD is, but it's basically racial geography and, and, and how um, racial areas change education and you know everything. And she's been really helping me out with the diversity aspect, but it, within the last year and a half, everyone wanted that. Well, can we do this right. program, but can you add in the diversity module because I really want, and it literally, they're saying it the same way you did. It's not because I really want my coaches to be more aware and more diverse. I just want to know if someone says, hey, I think I want my kid to play for you, <laughs> but how diverse is your club and your club's training? Well, we do this training course, you know, um, which is sad, but I guess at, at the same point, at least it's getting done at this point. So yeah, it's better yeah. than nothing getting it's done. Nothing. What do you think, like, what are your top skills that you're seeing or that you're training in most in, in the soft skill other than the, the diverse diversity and the inclusion? Yeah. And let me just go back to what you said a moment ago. Um, you mentioned that a lot of youth coaches haven't had any soft skill training. I think it's difficult because most, most youth coaches also have a full-time job. So it's very, very hard for them to get the training. Who's going to pay for that? Most optimist leagues aren't paying for that whatsoever. You can barely pay for your pay for helmets, right? So right. <laughs> definitely I'm not going to pay for that. Um, I think now the, the, the soft skills that I'm seeing as being more of having the most value, um, problem solving, uh, problem solving, grit. And you think about grit, grit really just helps employees to continue to work through tough times. How do you deal All right. So Colin, what are you seeing, um, you know, in, in what you're training and what you're doing when it relates to soft skills? Like what are the big ones that are being asked? What do you, what do you think needs pushed? Cause we always know like what the customer's asking isn't always what you think they need. So kind of where's that middle ground or, or what, what are you seeing and what are you training? And then let me first press that by saying that, as you know, I am working here in Shanghai, China. So a lot of the teams and individuals I coach and work with, 
are very, well, I would say very diverse, but are somewhat diverse and not necessarily based on race, more based on uh, gender, more based, based rest on um, uh, sexual identity or gen gender identity and whatnot. What I'm seeing as being the, the most, I would say, uh, useful or most desired uh, soft, soft skill is a combination of inclusion and teamwork. And that's primarily because it's, it's generally these days, it's easier to have a diverse team, a team based of people, different age groups, different religious beliefs, uh, different races. That part's not so challenging now. What's more challenging is getting people who have different thoughts and beliefs to work cohesively, to treat people in the team and as part of the team, uh, you know, you can't have diversity is good, but to reach the benefits, you have to have that inclusion. That inclusion really shows benefit when it comes back down to teaming and teamwork. So right now, that's the biggest area that we're seeing, the inclusion and teamwork, because that's what people have really got to, you know, it's sort of like if you have a coworker who's eating lunch by themselves. If that's the case, do you really have an inclusive environment? There's a reason why the person doesn't feel comfortable to join you or be part of that team, really be part of that team. Do you find that is an issue of the culture of, of the team or the environment, or do you find that that's often more of a culture of the person? And, and, the, and the reason I ask that is I'm, I'm doing a session now with a group on teamwork. And one of the things that we're talking about is well, the two concepts we're, we're on right now is vulnerability and then um, buy-in and how you can still have buy-in with a program and not agree. Like buy-in doesn't mean consensus. It just means that you see the bigger vision and while you may not agree with every decision, you still know that where you're going is the right way and you still have that buy-in. Um, but what I found is um, a, a lot of this is individualized and, and, I have to work with the individual on the side a little bit more because it's not so much the culture of the team or the business, but it's the actual culture of the person. Um, do you find that you're working more with individuals to get them into the team? Or are you able to work with the whole team and get them all on board? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I think in each case, it starts with leadership. It starts with the management team. What's the environment that they're, they're, helping the team to create, and also the kind of people they're bringing into the team. A lot of times you'll find that individuals uh, typically want to be inclusive, they want to help contribute. However, they may not know how, or there may be unspoken barriers that prevent them from doing that. I think it's part of management team. And again, we talk about managers as coaching to the coaching side and help coach a team to be more inclusive, to have more of that team experience. Because you can take somebody who is not comfortable sharing their views. For example, if you have a team of people in their 40s and you have a new hire who's, let's say, late 20s, they may not feel comfortable sharing their views because they may feel people will not be responsive to that. They're, they're the new person on the team. They should just shut up and be seen, not speaking and adding, adding content. So it goes back down to the leadership, um, recognizing that and trying to help coach the team into really being more inclusive. Is that something that should be part of the hiring process in, in the sense of bringing someone into that team? Should, should we do more work or should companies do more work screening their hires to see if they'll fit their team? Or is that something where you want to take the risk and see if you can mold them? 
You know, <laughs> they, they can't bring <laughs> well, no, I think most companies need to do a much better job in the hiring, whether it means being able to hire a more diverse set of employees. I think people try to find people that fit their team, and that may not be the way to go because when they do that, they're, they're maybe missing out on a little bit of out-of-the-box out thinking, and they're hiring people, they're trying to replace the person who left, so to speak, and that doesn't allow them to be more diverse in thinking. I think, I think leaders need to make sure they're hiring people who are open to being in a diverse environment and are, you know, know, have a good track record uh, being on teams where you have a lot of diverse individuals, they're willing to speak up. Again, going more to the softer skills, but I do think that the hiring practices need to need to be improved. And that comes back down to not just the, the, the manager, but also the, the requirements or the way of working for HR as well. HR needs to be able to coach these managers on how to identify, how to better interview, how to have less bias when they're interviewing or even looking at resumes. A lot of times you know this, if you have a name on resume that's more um, ethnic, they may not get past the next, next view. If you have people who graduate from university, they may get past the next, next, next level just on, on, that, on that alone. So a lot of improvement needs to take place in hiring practices across the board. You know, one of the soft skills that come up a lot and is a big buzzword is, and I think you and I talked briefly about it um, offline, was is grit. Do you find that it's easier just to incorporate grit into the trainings that you're already doing as opposed to doing just a segment on grit? Um, I, I feel like it's one of those that we can incorporate into almost everything that we're doing because we need it in everything we're doing. Like, I think it's easy to, I don't want to say easy, but I, I, I think a, a way to train grit is, you know, hey, we're going to do a module on grit. And we're going to talk about resilience and kind of go through it. But I think what we're missing out is the opportunity to add grit to the other things like conflict resolution and communication and those other skills do you think there needs to be more cross-training or do you like it being, hey, okay, we're going to work on this module on grit and then we're going to go work on this module or do you like, kind of make it holistic and bring it all together? I think each, each enterprise or entity needs to do the best works for them. I think standalone, they may work depending on the environment. I think the best way to do it is have a standalone module on grit, but also when you have other standalone modules, weave that back in. Because people need to really see how, as you mentioned, in other, in, other, in other areas, how grit is involved. To me, grit just means you're sticking in there, you're sticking in there, you're sticking in there until you guys have, have come out on top in a much more positive place than, you were, than where you were when you started. So when we're looking at training, and we obviously can't avoid this topic, can we compare what you're doing pre-pandemic and, and COVID to, to what you're doing now and kind of how it's going to shape your future and, you know, how you're working with clients and how you kind of see it shaping out? Yeah, I think um, as far as my, my view as a, a life coach, as a career coach, I, I, I separate that from being a trainer because I would say post-pandemic, most of the training that's being requested now is more of a diversity and inclusion. And that is not because of COVID, <laughs> that's because of George Floyd in the US and the world's reaction to that. So that's not necessarily because of COVID. But I do know that the training that's being provided to employees 
that is based on COVID, it is really training that employees can take standalone by themselves, not necessarily needing to be in a large room for two or three days, because as you know, you can't do a Zoom training for over three, four hours and be effective. So they're looking now for what titles or what areas can be learned or um, 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 trained in those many modules. And again, those are more of your soft skills, but I think what I'm seeing from all my clients, they're seeing the writing on the wall. And what that is, is we all know that the global economy has taken a hit. Um, jobs, jobs aren't as uh, available as they were before. But then I'll tell you, in a few months, the gun's gonna go off and the job market is gonna open back up. And I tell my clients, what is going to make you more valuable in the workplace, more valuable to that to the manager than your next door neighbor, than your friends? Because you're competing against your next door neighbors and your friends for a small amount of jobs. And I mentioned, yes, you want to get those soft skills, but don't forget about the old fashioned technical skills as well. So I think that a lot of people now are saying to themselves, what can I learn on my own? Not through my company. So, you know, when I coach individuals, I tell them, don't just look at the offerings the company is doing. You can go online and be a blockchain uh, certified person in six weeks. There's a lot of technical training that you can take right now that gives you just that advantage over the next person going for that same job. So go to Udemy, go to LinkedIn, spend $30 for a training program and those little digital certifications they actually do add up and make you more valuable. And by the way, you're learning a new skill that's going to be valuable in the marketplace. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, I just finished this second master's and, you know, part of the deal with the university was that we uh, get free access to LinkedIn learning. And on my like exit, you know, what did you think of this program, everything? And what are you going to miss? And I put the biggest thing I miss is when my subscription runs out to LinkedIn learning <laughs> because yeah. I, I really became a junkie on that. Like, you know, if I'm doing a website and I like to do everything myself and if I'm doing a website and I don't understand Java or something that's going on, I'm going to LinkedIn learning and I'm doing a week or, you know, a 14 hour course and I'm going to learn it because you know what, if something happens and I need to switch industries, Hey, look, I can script in Java. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there for people. And I think you're spot on to, to look outside what your company is offering and see what other things out there will make you more valuable in the entire market. Um, you know, like my neighbors were talking about, they're going to learn another language. And I thought, well, that's great. But what's that like? If you're just doing it to pass the time, you know your job's safe or whatever, that's fine. But if you're unsure of your job, what's that second language going to do to you, for you? There's already probably 500,000 people that can speak Spanish, you know, doing your job. But is there something else that would propel you above that from a technical skill? Um, so I think it's just a matter of finding that. Do, do you think this trend of working from home and the Zooming and all that I feel like that bubble is going to burst. Like I, I think it filled the gap and it did what it had to do, but I know everyone's worried about like the real estate market because people are moving out of their offices and working from home, but I don't know that that's going to be sustainable. Uh, to me, that's like the Google model where 
you know, Google came in and hired everyone away with that open floor plan and, you know, come in dressed however you want, but eventually it kind of reverted back and it's kind of going back to closed spaces because a lot of people weren't comfortable working in open space. Like, do you, do you see that as where we're going? Like, are you worried that it's going to be a lot of work at home or are we going to go back to brick and mortar and sort yes. of the way it is? Yeah. So when I was IBM, I experienced the same thing. We, 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 um, uh, like I say we moved to an agile environment where everything was open and it was new, it was hot. People who worked at home came back to the office. And I do think what's happening now is very much cyclical. I do think, I do hope it's going to go back to the office because one of the things that we're lacking now, especially for new teams and young teams, is that, is that, that real interaction. It's that going to the water cooler and talking about the weekend. And it's very hard to, to duplicate that when you're talking over Zoom. I think that Zoom is, is a great way for collaboration, not for teaming, which is very different. It's very good for collaboration, not for developing relationships with your coworker. Because typically, once the Zoom meeting starts, you start your topic. Once, once the topic is finished, you get off the call. You're not sitting there talking, having a conversation first, or walking back down the hallway together and having a conversation. So I think organizations will start seeing that production is going down because now we're, we're working to meet a metric, not working and collaborating with our teammates. So I do think it will go back. I don't know when, of course, but I do hope that it doesn't go back to the point where you can shake hands, you can see somebody, you can very much interact. And I apologize for all you folks who are free of rush hour traffic right now. But yes, I do think that we need to go back to that. What's on the horizon for you? So, you know, we, we talk about the learning and the growth, but as, as teachers and coaches and trainers, you know, we're always evolving and looking at different things. What, what's on your horizon? What's 2021 other than running the, the five marathons or what, <laughs> whatever this punishment right. you're giving yourself is for 2021? What, professionally, what's on the horizon for you? Well, professionally, it's, of course, becoming a better coach, better life coach, a better career coach, a better, a better coach overall. And that is getting my next level of certification. That is making sure that I'm really, in it, I'm really able to help my clients to go from where they are now to where they want to be. It also, it also includes, you know, becoming a better, <laughs> a better trainer um, using online tools. I, I'm, I think I'm a very proficient trainer face-to-face -face standing up. Uh, it's very easy for me to train, you know, two-day training all day. However, it's hard for me to do a three-hour Zoom training, to be honest with you, because the interaction is far, far different. And quite frankly, we know that a lot of people have the TV on in the background and this and that. So I'm trying to find ways this year, the first six months of this year, to be a more effective trainer using online tools as well. So in both areas, improving my coaching ability and improving my ability to help people help people improve through online training. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what led me to uh, my first master's degree is in sports and performance psychology. And I found, you know, we, we talked earlier about the youth coaches and, and polling them and, and what their issues are. And one of them was just the access to training. There, there just isn't a lot of access for in-person training. So I started to do, uh, you know, online training and creating online courses, but I wasn't happy with like the box stuff, you know, the companies that pre-did everything and you just kind of typed in your information. Right. 
So I started to learn how to do it myself. And my wife worked for the university and was like, hey, you know, we get a really good tuition discount. So I went back and got a second master's in learning technologies. And so I can do more efficient online learning and remote learning and, and get it. And it's, it's really interesting to see the, the contrast between my psychological degree and that degree and, and how they conflict at times, but then how they're also in harmony. But, but I'm on the same path. My, my goal for 2021 is to get to have more accessible content and, and courses for, for those coaches and, and for those businesses, because that's what I think that's what's killing them. They, they, they want training and I think they have it avail, available, but they just there's nothing out there. Um, in certain niches and, and areas. I mean, you can go online anywhere and do, you know, motivational training or entry-level team training, but I want to go deeper than that. And I, I yeah. think you're that Zoom, get more effective with the online. Because regardless if we go back or not, you know, if you're in Shanghai and someone wants you in Detroit and you can do it via Zoom and, you know, it's a quick fix um, as opposed to flying there and, and having to do it, that might help out. So I, I think that's in a good good spot for you. Yeah, but also just having the control over your own personal education. One thing I learned, I'm not a, you know, I, I take the subway here in Shanghai and everybody is looking down on the cell phone. It's ridiculous. To me, it's ridiculous. But that is where it's at. People want to be able to take training on their device. People want to be able to sit on the subway, sit on a bus, or be in a car, or be in a restaurant, and pick up the, pick up the device and go through some training modules. So as trainers... You know, I know for me, I have to stop fighting the, the flow. You know, swimming, swimming against against the against the against the, against the swimming against the, the what is the stream or whatnot? Yeah, tide. Yeah, yeah, yeah the tide. tide. And yeah, and find more ways to be more effective. Not even just on Zoom, but be more effective on a handheld device, right? Right. And that may mean more standalone. You no, know, I'm not me more pre-programmed or, or packaged training, but whatever it is, whatever it is, we'll figure it out. Yeah, I, I was just going through the analytics of, of our social media and our websites, and it's now about 60% mobile device, 40% desktop or, you know, computers. So you got to format everything and, and get everything that's, you know, phone, phone and tablet friendly. Right. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up, are there any topics or any other words of wisdom that you'd like to, to lay out to our listeners or any um, topic that we didn't hit? No, I think we hit we hit all the, the, the good topics today. We had a, we had a good session today. Um, I, I want to say to all the athletes that are getting older, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. You know, every five years, make sure you're getting a good checkup by a sports doctor. Make sure that you're not doing things to hurt your body, uh, and make sure that you're in a very comfortable mental place where you are. Because I'll tell you, when I was in my thirties, when I train, 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 and push, push, push to really kick ass on these races. It was, it was tough, but it wasn't fun. And now in my 40s, as I continue to train hard, but have a more calm mindset, it's much more enjoyable. So I want you guys to really focus on getting the proper mindset. Now, on, in, a, in a business or career standpoint, continue to learn new skills, new skills, new skills. You know, athletes know what it's like to be in a competitive mindset, but anybody needs to know this. In order for you to get the career you want, the job you want, I'm telling you guys, in a few months, everybody is going after the next set of jobs. Even your job you have right now, somebody will be coming after your job. So you want to make sure you're always upskilling, upskilling, reskilling, and ask yourself this. Six months ago, 
What new skills have I learned? And if the answer, whatever the answer is, that's fine. Draw a line in the sand. Say to yourself, in the next six months, I want to learn these new skills and just go get it done. Awesome. Colin, if people want to uh, reach out to you for your, you know, maybe hire you or look at you, what's the best way for them to, to reach out and contact you or follow you and all that fun stuff? The best way to reach me is through my website, O-L-I-G-Y-E.com. That is O-L-I-G-Y-E.com, O-L-I-G-Y-E.com. If you feel free to follow me, I'm not active. I post, I post what I'm doing, but I'm not active going back and forth. But if you, if you follow me, certain message, I will contact, contact you. But the best way, go to my website and you can navigate how to find me. And what's beautiful now is we talked about, if you reach out to me via email, we can literally be on a Zoom call, a phone call in a matter of days and start getting you from where you are to where you want to be. So, Dan, thank you for allowing me the platform to share my story and share my thoughts on these two topics. No, awesome. I love it. And, and we will definitely check back in again at the end of 2021 and see how you made out with uh, your running and, and, and what all's going on and, and see what changes. And hopefully we'll be, you know, out of this pandemic and back to some sort of normal. There is no more normal. It's yeah, a new, it's a new, new, it's a new thing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, again, thank you, Colin Thompson. I know it's weird hours between Shanghai and here, but I'm glad we could make this work. Uh, thank you, everyone, for checking into the Mental Cast. I'm Dan Mickle, and we'll see you in a couple weeks with the next episode. Thanks, and be safe, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy and hosted by Dan Mickle. You can always reach the show on all social media platforms at the username at RealDanMickle or via the show's website at danmickle.com. Don't forget to check out our title sponsor, Soul Performance Academy, at the username at 717soul and on their website, 717soul.com. We hope you can join us for our next episode.